0: Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you
1: drive impact. This episode
0: of the SG Engage podcast features a session from BBCon 2020 virtual on how federal data privacy legislation may affect social good organizations. The session was led by Cameron Stoll, Director of Privacy at Blackbaud, and Sally Ehrenfried, who leads government relations for Blackbaud. Visit bbconference.com to be the first to get updates about BBCon 2021. Because I'm a lawyer, there has to be a little bit of fine print. So here's today's. This presentation contains general knowledge, not specific legal advice. Please consult with your own counsel who's familiar with your organization's particular facts and circumstances.
1: Thanks, Cameron. And with that, here is our agenda for today. So we're going to walk briefly through the legislative process. We're going to look at an overview of the federal data privacy legislative landscape privacy practices included in the legislation, and then at the very end, specific federal privacy legislation and action items. So first, an introduction to the legislative process. So as you can all imagine, given my role and the work that I've done, my favorite schoolhouse rock was I'm just a bill. So let's just take a few moments to go through an, an understanding of what it means from start to finish of how a bill becomes law. So first, in this case, legislation is introduced in either the House of or the senate and if we have two identical pieces of legislation introduced in each they are called companion bills and as these bills work their way through the process they can be amended and changed depending on which body takes them up and how they're acted upon so once a piece of legislation is introduced it is referred to the committee of jurisdiction once it's with its committee the committee then decides whether or not to hold a hearing on the bill If a hearing is held and then they decide to mark up the bill, another meeting which is called a markup takes place in which the members go through bills line by line to discuss the legislation. It is at this time that committee members can offer amendments to the bill. These amendments are voted on during the process and at the very end, a bill is voted on yes or no by each committee member. If a bill is reported out of committee favorably, the bill goes to the floor of the respected chamber. If it is not reported out favorably, the bill is in essence dead and goes no further. Once the bill goes to the floor of the respected chamber, it is then decided whether it is put on the calendar. Just because it makes it out of committee doesn't mean it makes it to the floor calendar. And if a bill is taken up by the chamber, again, amendments are offered, they are voted on on the floor of the House or the Senate, and then a vote on final passage is held. If the bill is passed, it then goes to the other chamber for consideration. Again, no guarantees that the other chamber takes it up to discuss it. However, if they do, and if each chamber passes a distinct version of the same bill, then the bill goes to conference. And it is at this time that the differences between the two bills are hammered out amongst a conference committee. Once these differences are hammered out and we have a conference report, it goes back to each floor, each um, each chamber's floor, for an up or down vote. And once a conference report is reported out of committee, it cannot be amended. So it's just final passage only. Another thing to keep in mind: it is the fall and we are getting towards the end of the 116th Congress. So any bill that is not acted upon, i.e. passed and enacted into law by the end of this year is in essence dead and would need to be reintroduced in the next Congress, which will occur in early January of 2021. So what is the federal data privacy legislative landscape? So first of all, at a very high level, There are about 19 federal privacy bills that have been introduced in the 216th Congress. Now, that doesn't include all the bills that also have privacy components within them. There are also 58 key committees and lawmakers included in the conversation of this, of which the California Congressional Delegation is one. Then for today's conversation, we're going to look at three proposals which are rooted in the Senate. So who are the key committees and lawmakers? So first of all, the committees of jurisdiction are the Senate Committee on Commerce Science and Transportation and the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Now, the reason why we're gonna focus specifically on the Senate today is because the two main proposals have been introduced or proposed by the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee and the ranking member of the Senate Commerce Committee. Both have competing bills. Earlier in the year, there were negotiations held among among leaders of both sides, and while conversations did take place, unfortunately, they didn't come to a, a compromise so that a bill could move forward. So we will talk about the two proposals later in the deck, and then we will also look to what might happen in the coming months. And the reason why I mentioned California's congressional delegation is because they are 55 members strong, and we all know that CCPA, or the California Consumer Privacy Act was passed earlier, I guess earlier last year and went into effect this year. And so when we're looking at what happens to a federal bill and with California having such a large delegation, their delegation can actually have an impact on whether a bill passes or not, especially in light of how it treats CCPA. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Cameron. Thanks, Sally. Um, We're going to do just a quick
0: overview of the actual substantive privacy practices that are involved in some of these pieces of legislation. So the first principle we're going to talk about is a very common one. All of your organizations should have their own privacy policy on your website. The principle of transparency requires organizations to use data only in the ways they say they do. Sounds like a pretty pretty clear-cut principle, but these requirements, they set out the disclosures that organizations have to make to data subjects, individuals, such as what data is being collected, how it's being used, and with whom it's being shared. But it's not just the what that's really important here, it's the how. The information has to be presented in a way that's concise, transparent, intelligible, and easily accessible to the data subjects using clear and plain language. So you're starting to see a transition away from this complicated legalese into privacy policies that are easy for normal people to understand who don't speak log geek like I do and like Sally does. So the vast majority of the privacy bills that have been introduced in the states and in the federal government explicitly require organizations to be transparent about processing of data. When I say processing, I just mean anything you do with personal data, collecting it, using it, storing it, um, and deleting it. All those things are processing. And so you have to communicate these practices in a clear and meaningful privacy notice. These bills also require the disclosure of whether or not they're profiling data subjects, selling data, or conducting targeted marketing, depending on the piece of legislation. So those are some additional details that you wouldn't normally think need to be disclosed in a privacy policy. Another big thing to watch out for is whether or not any legislation will contain limitations on changing your privacy policy. So some of these bills require that you directly notify individuals if you're going to make material changes to your privacy policy. And then you have to get an affirmative, explicit consent to having their data used in accordance with that new privacy policy. So effectively an opt-in before you can continue using that person's um, personal data. The next big principle, we're going to cover consent. So the GDPR was really the first law to give individuals choice about processing their data on the basis of consent. And what they did, the European Commission made it very clear that consent has to be an affirmative step an individual takes. So many of us, if we go to the Lululemon website right now to buy more yoga pants for for the pandemic, when you check out, at least in America, you'll see the tick box is usually pre-ticked for please sign me up to receive direct marketing emails from Lululemon to buy more overpriced yoga pants. And so that's a concept of silence as consent. And the GDPR comes out and says, actually, that, that's not going to fly anymore. So a, a yes by default is not appropriate for consent. And so all these laws and these bills, they treat consent a little bit differently. But the one thing that is consistent is that silence is not consent by default. Now, this new requirement, it doesn't mean that you need consent for everything. There are lots of things that you can do with personal data that you don't need someone's active opt-in for. The most obvious one is going to be completing a transaction. So if somebody wants to make a donation and they enter in their payment data, you obviously don't need a separate tick box, an unchecked tick box that says, yes, please use my credit card number to process the donation, because that's the thing that they've asked you to do with their personal data. So that's, that's a, a very commonly used example. Some other ones are system or network management, security, fraud detection, things you need to do with data to observe your legal obligations, to prevent harm to an individual, and then research or fair use data subject rights. Um, This is a very important area. This is really where the GDPR shines, I think, as the first law to really codify all of these rights together. Some existed in common law, some existed in, in sort of charters of fundamental rights, but the GDPR is really the one that puts some oomph behind all of these data subject rights. And Many of them are are really self-explanatory. You have access, which is a right that lets people see behind the curtain. Essentially, it it, uh, is the right for somebody to contact your organization and ask what data you possess. Some of these bills go a little bit further and they'd require your organization to also provide a list of every third party and service provider you've transferred your data to and why. The next is obvious. (laughs) It's the the correction, right? So you as an individual can contact an organization and say, oh, you have my name wrong or you have an incorrect address. And that organization has to fix it and then also convey that correction downstream. So if I've given your data to any third parties, maybe by um, list sharing or perhaps my service providers, so I'm using, you know, Microsoft as a tool, I would need to pass that data downstream. The next is the portability right, and this one's an interesting one. It likely originated out of people's desire to take their cell phone numbers from one carrier to another, The portability, right, as it exists now, the first one appeared in the GDPR, and it requires organizations to provide individuals a machine-readable copy of their personal data, but only the data that the individual has provided to the organization. So, again, its intent is to empower data subjects individuals to not be stuck with a particular service provider if i have the right to request a file containing all my data i can take it to another service provider and I have more flexibility there now keep in mind because it only applies to the data that an individual provides to your organization it doesn't include enriched data or inferences that the organization makes about a person. So that's an important thing to note. The last one, and probably the one we've heard about the most, is the right to be forgotten, the right of deletion, the right of erasure. It has a few different names. It's, again, a hallmark of the GDPR, and it's become a core tenet of privacy law. The right to be forgotten gives individuals the right to ask your organization to delete all the data you hold about them. Now it's not an absolute right, so you can keep data as an organization if you need to do something that that person asked you to do, or to comply with legal obligations, for example. So just to illustrate, if you're an organization, recur making a um receiving a recurring donation from a donor, and that donor asks to keep that recurring donation going but also asks you to forget them that's not possible and you can say well no actually we can't forget you because we need your personal data to continuously you know charge your your account on a monthly basis so those are just a couple examples the ccpa contains two additional ex- uh, exemptions uh, an internal use exemption and uh, an exemption for uses of data that are consistent with a person's you know, reasonable expectations of how you're gonna use the data. So critics of the CCPA have commented that these exceptions kind of swallow the rule because there are a lot of things you can do that are consistent with expectations um, and lots of ways that you can use data internally, of course. Here are two other very important privacy principles. The first is security. For non-sectoral privacy laws, and what that means is laws that apply to organizations irrespective of their industry um, or their sector. For non-sectoral privacy laws, security requirements are actually very vague. The reason for this is that they have to apply to a range of types of organizations, varying in size, varying in the sensitivity of the data that they collect, the amount of data that they collect. If they're written, for example, to address small businesses, they'll be way too lax for large, sophisticated companies. If it's the opposite and they're very onerous, small organizations can effectively be priced out of business or operation right out of the gate because they can't afford to put really um, extensive security measures in place. So generally, non-sectoral laws and bills in the privacy space require organizations to implement and maintain reasonable administrative, physical, and technical measures to protect data. Sometimes they give examples of what some reasonable measures would be, and sometimes they're silent on it. Conversely, sometimes they appoint government agency to adopt guidelines where they go into a lot more detail But again, usually those would be guidelines, and so there would be arguments for, you know, why it's not an appropriate measure for an organization of your size or complexity. And finally, the last one is data minimization. So this is the obligation for organizations only to collect and use the data that's necessary and proportionate do the things they say they're going to do in their privacy policies. So back to the first slide. This is where it all sort of ties in together. If you're being transparent about your data practices, here's what I say, you know, here, here's what our organization does with your data. And then your data collection, you should be tailored to those purposes. So for example, if I'm never, ever going to call you and I have no reason to call you There's no need for me to have your phone number for fraud purposes or anything like that. Um, Why even collect a phone number? Um, So that's just one example. Now, you can use data for additional things if you receive consent, if it's in your privacy policy, or there's another exception in play like system maintenance or for security purposes.
1: So with that, I will hand it back over to Sally. Thanks, Cameron. And now we're going to do a deep dive into some of the provisions that are included in the bills that we mentioned earlier. So, as I mentioned, we have um, Senator Wicker's bill, which is the United States Consumer Data Privacy Act, and he is currently the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee. We have Senator Cantwell's bill, which is the Consumer Online Privacy Rights Act, otherwise known as COPRA, and she is the ranking member of the committee. And then you'll see on the right corner, we have a Brookings Institution compromise. And what happened is the Brookings Institution wanted to see if they could try to find a path forward, a compromise to get federal data privacy legislation through Congress. And so they took both the U.S. CDPA and COPRA and merge them together to try to form a compromise of the two. So let's start with a few of the provisions. First and foremost, does it apply to nonprofits? So nonprofits are included in both the U.S. CDPA and the Brookings Compromise. The Brookings Report has a considerable exception for nonprofit organizations, however. Nonprofits that process data of less than 100,000 individuals, households, or devices would automatically qualify for an exception to the Brookings compromise. The other provisions I'd like us to look at are the privacy statements and policies, affirmative express consent, and then also the definition of publicly available data, and if we have time, data subject rights. So when you look at um, the privacy statements, the three plans are actually fairly well aligned with regards to privacy policies and statements. They view that privacy policies should be disclosed in a clear and conspicuous manner and made available to the public. Brookings would go further with a private and really separate them out with a privacy statement, basic disclosures, and then more comprehensive disclosures for others. But they all agree that statements should include categories of data collected, processing purposes for each category, the effective date of the privacy policy, how to exercise one's data rights, data retention practices, and data transfer practices to third parties. These are just but a few of the privacy practices that should be included in statements and policies. Now, with regards to affirmative express consent, again, there are are three very much aligned with when you should seek affirmative express consent. A covered entity must receive affirmative express consent to transfer sensitive data to to a third party, to process sensitive covered data, and then include a description of the processing purpose and the right to withhold consent. When we look at exceptions to affirmative express consent, these would be what is typical, fulfilling transactions, internal research, and complying with legal obligations, some of the exceptions that Cameron mentioned earlier now Brookings goes a little bit further and actually suggests a carve out for use cases in which data is used momentarily and then forgotten so for example you're in a new city and you want to find out where the nearest coffee shop is and you type in where is the closest coffee shop you get your information you move on to the coffee shop and then in theory that app then immediately forgets that you ever asked that asked that question and then when it comes to the definition of publicly available information. and this is something we think that is really you know, of interest to, um, to nonprofit organizations and in particular fundraisers, is there is a, they, the two bills actually diverge on what they consider to be publicly available information. So first of all, with USCDPA, they define it as information that is available to the general public, from federal, state or local government records. They also view it as widely available to the general public i e. through television, internet, or radio. However, COPR has a more narrow definition, and they want publicly available information to be information that is lawfully made available to the general public from widely distributed media and information that is directly and voluntarily disclosed to the general public by the individual. Now, in this case, Brookings favors more of the COPRA, I'm sorry, more of the U.S. CDPA approach than the COPRA approach because there is concern that there would be consent fatigue related to this approach. And then finally, when it comes to data subject rights, again, both very, very similar with one really considerable exception. So both include access, deletion, correction, but where U.S. US CDPA US CDPA goes is with the the option to de-identify. So a subject has the option to reach out to to an entity and say, you know what, instead of deleting my data, I just want to be anonymous. And so that way the consumer is both anonymous and yet the entity continues to be able to use their data in a way that is appropriate. Now, they also have to inform third parties and service providers to do, that as do, do any of the subject data rights, as does the entity. But the Brookings approach really favors the approach of USC DPA to, again, allow folks to, de, to uh, become anonymous and de-identify their data versus deleting their data all along. And in this case, from, with regards to subject data rights, the Brookings bill recommends that small and medium-sized entities not be included in this particular step and therefore nonprofit organizations would be exempt from this provision. And then since we are coming up on election season here in the US, I thought it would be fitting for us to do at a very high level, what the what the impact the election might have on federal data privacy legislation. As I mentioned that the 116th Congress is coming to an end. So at the end of this calendar year, any bills that have not been enacted will be dead. And anything, any legislator who wants to um, resurrect their bill will need to do so in the next Congress. So what we will most likely see is that Senator Cantwell will reintroduce her bill in the 117th Congress. Now, depending on what happens with the elections will depend on what her role is. So should the Democrats retain control of the House, gain control of the Senate, and if the vice president wins the presidential election, we could see movement on federal data privacy legislation in 2021 because all three chambers will be under one party control. And if the Democrats retake the Senate, Senator Cantwell then becomes chair of the Committee on Commerce and Science and Transportation, and she has more of an ability to move her own bill forward. If the Republicans retain control of the Senate, or um, it's most likely that Senator Roy Blunt will become chair of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation. You see Senator Wicker is in line to become chair of Senate Armed Services. And he has a very large shipbuilding industry in in his district in Mississippi. And so he's he's going to want to be on Armed Services to assist his constituents with those um, defense contracts. Now, if the Republicans don't retain control of the Senate, it is still likely that Senator Blunt will become the ranking member. And then lastly, while the vice president has not issued really concrete policy with regards to data privacy or with, with regards to tech privacy in general, we do think that they will look at it, although it's not going to be a high priority. They have a number of position papers on their website and really not one truly focuses on tech policy. So what we would expect is that you know we will see some movement, but maybe not a lot. We won't necessarily see... A grand gesture on behalf of the administration with regards to federal data privacy. However, with Senator Harris, the vice president's uh, vice presidential pick, being from California and being from Oakland, she does have very close ties to Silicon Valley, and so we would expect that should federal data privacy legislation move forward, she will have a hand in some of these negotiations. In years past. When she was still the um, attorney general for California and uh, the DA for, um, for the county, um, she has spoken with tech firms in the past. And her approach has typically been a, um, really taking a, um, a step back and looking at that hands-off approach, shall we say, to tech policy and to tech firms. And so we would expect that she might have a favorable view of tech policy from a very broad, broad perspective. So with that, um, I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. We so appreciate you taking the time out to, um, to spend some time with us.